when I was a school teacher in New York for a number of years, fifth grade and sixth grade, and uh, I haven't thought about this in a while. This is not planned for the talk, but this is what's coming out now. And each morning, you know, you start, we all do the Pledge of Allegiance together, and it, I just had this old familiar feeling. We did the Pledge of Allegiance, and then when we finished, and then all of a sudden I realized, oh, I'm the one that's supposed to be teaching now. I was back in my fifth grade class, you know. Oh, it's me. Uh, so, it's me. <clears throat> so I wanted to uh, talk tonight about uh, a subject that I've been sharing for, uh, for some time now uh, that it seems uh, useful to share and Tara thought it would be useful to share. Some of you might have heard me share about this before, but uh, I think it can't be uh, can't be overstated uh, that this is uh, a path of happiness. What we're doing here is really a path to the highest happiness. Sometimes it can be lost in the classical Buddhist teachings, which are so profound, which are transformative, life-changing. Uh, there can be um, an emphasis on suffering and the end of suffering. The Four Noble Truths, there is suffering in life. There's a cause of suffering. There's an end to suffering, and there's a path leading to the end to suffering. With all of, all of that talk about suffering, sometimes you can forget that this is about happiness. The Buddha was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness and all the others true happiness experiences of happiness will uh, will be yours. <clears throat> the Dalai Lama, in his really beautiful book, The Art of Happiness, he starts out with this line, the purpose of life is to be happy. Just really take that in. It's such a profound line for me. The purpose of life is to be happy. You might think, gosh, that seems kind of self-indulgent or frivolous or selfish. But if you reflect on it, finding true happiness, finding true well-being within yourself is, as Tara was mentioning the other, the other night, is your gift to the world. Because if you're in touch with everything, all the beautiful blessings and gifts you've been given, they shine through the less obstructed they are. It's not sometimes so easy to remember that, especially as we're, uh, as we're getting in touch with opening up to all the hard stuff, which is definitely a key piece of coming to true well-being. Uh, 
Um, but this is probably a deep-seated motivation why you're here, whether or not you've articulated it to yourself in your mind. There's something in you that is rooting for your happiness, for your well-being. Isn't that so? Anybody here that doesn't want to be happy? And if you are fighting your hand saying, yeah, I like being grumpy, that's just your way of being happy. <laughs> but everything you do, if you, if you really reflect on it, is motivated by some deep place inside of you that is uh, either yearning to have a deeper kind of well-being, to lessen the pain, or to, uh, or to uh, increase your, your happiness. It might be misguided at times. It might lead you down places or that, that impulse might be uh, through habits uh, directed in ways that don't serve you. But there is a very pure, deep-seated impulse that leads us onward. When I first got into the, the practice um, many years ago now, um, I was um, really, I was searching for well-being or searching for the end of suffering. I had a lot of suffering in my, in my mind and in my heart. and It looked pretty good on the outside, you know, living a relatively privileged life. But that doesn't, that doesn't, necessarily touch the level of well-being inside. And when I got um, first heard the, the teachings, and this was in uh, the summer of 1974 when Joseph Goldstein first came, to, uh, came back from Asia and was teaching at Naropa, and I, um, I, heard, I heard him, and after a little while, it didn't take me long to, to realize he knew something that I didn't know, and I wanted to know how he could be just so comfortable in his own skin and at ease, and he was saying it's possible to not be run by your neurotic thought patterns, which had never occurred to me as an option before. <laughs> but the way he said it, I really, I, I, I believed it, and I was going to go for it. Uh, and then I had one key moment in, uh, in that first summer. By the way, I think um, um, that it's, you can turn it up a degree. It was, it's a little cool now. Is it cool? Yeah. Just kind of find the middle path in there. Thanks. Yeah. The, just the thermostat, just a touch. What's that? A little less cool. A little, a, just a, a touch higher. I wanted to make sure you were awake, but I didn't want you to. I don't want you to be freezing to death, will you? Thanks. Um, so there was this this key moment in my uh, in my practice that first that first summer. Um, I happened to go into the um, uh, into the class, the essential Buddhism class that Joseph was teaching, uh, wearing my New York Knicks. T-shirt. Uh, the team, my team at that time, not my team now, but uh, that time. 
And I was actually a season ticket holder to the New York Knicks. Some of the most uh, peak experiences had happened in Madison Square Garden. And I had this, this thought that came to be in the meditation, remembering that I was wearing my Knicks shirt. And I got very disturbed and, and kind of horrified. It was the first time I, I had the... the um, the nerve to go up and speak to Joseph, who I was kind of awed by to that point. And I said, uh, could I speak to you, uh, Joseph? He said, sure. And I said, uh, look, uh, I'm a season ticket holder in uh, Madison Square Garden. Am I going to go to the games and be sitting there saying, nice shot, Frazier. Good pass, Havlicek. <laughs> okay. Because I wasn't ready to sign on for that. No. And he gave me the perfect answer. He said, don't worry, you'll probably still get into the games as much, but you'll get over a loss sooner. I said, okay, <laughs> sign me up. I'm ready. But anyway, I, I, the reason I share it is that uh, I, my natural bent, even with, with all the, the suffering that I had inside, was and is, uh, I have an intense side to me. I have a passionate side. I feel things deeply and I, I love to play and I love to, uh, to celebrate. And uh, fortunately, I got passionate about something that chilled me out. So I fell in love with the practice. I was very motivated to practice, uh, as maybe you are if you have some uh, some pain in your heart and you, you want to get uh, find a, an answer or resolve your suffering. I was very motivated and did a lot of practice. And I had what is called uh, a long honeymoon period where the practice was everything, all you needed. And I'd be kind of yelling to my friends, you know, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. You know, they kind of kept their distance after a while. I kind of figured I don't want to be a hard seller, just uh, get a little softer on it. But anyway, I, the practice was everything to me in this long honeymoon period for about 10 years, really. And then at some point, I got very serious about my practice, dead serious about my practice. Emphasis on the dead. And I lost my joy. Somehow I had misunderstood some teachings that, um, that I subtly took to be that it's not okay to um, feel delight and celebrate and uh, be passionate about life. Not consciously, not here, but in a deeper place. And I want to read to you um, the Buddha's words, uh, at least one translation. This is from uh, Thomas Byram translation of uh, the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, 
even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. But there are some teachings that it can be uh, easily, they can be easily misconstrued and misinterpreted uh, that made me realize um, just what was going on or kind of um, pointed me to some ways that um, we can misunderstand the teachings. I, I wanted to share with you two concepts, very profound concepts that perhaps can be misinterpreted this way. By the way, I'm curious before, we, uh, before I go on, uh, anybody ever feel that their practice is getting a bit serious? Okay. So, And maybe that's not so for you, but uh, wh whether or not that's so, uh, one of my intentions in the talk is to um, practically, pragmatically, use the teachings to open up to joy. One, one teaching is uh, the very profound concept of Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A. And th this is um, Tanasaro Bhikkhu's uh, definition or um, his, his particular wording for Samvega. The oppressive sense of shock dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. How does that land? <laughs> This is a very important uh, understanding, but the operative words here that are easy to gloss over, the, the realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived, where most people are going around as the Buddha saw, what motivated the Buddha to, to teach, he saw that everybody wants to be happy and they're doing just about everybody, they're doing exactly the things that are leading to more suffering. And that was his motivation to, to teach. So not seeing how life as it's normally lived is just creating more dukkha. So that's one very important teaching to understand in a profound way. Another one, very powerful understanding, the concept of nibbida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which depending upon what translation you have, nibbida is a stage of uh, of insight along the progress of insight where one 
um, develops a different kind of relationship to this mind and body. And in some translations, it's spoken of that one should abide in utter disgust for the aggregates. The aggregates, five aggregates is another way of saying this mind-body process. One should develop utter disgust with regard to the aggregates. Another translation, one should uh, cultivate revulsion for the aggregates. Again, not a fun way to look upon yourself. Let's look in the mirror. Oh yeah, do I have enough revulsion yet? You know, It's hard enough sometimes or for many of us to look in the mirror and feel at all okay about what we see, let alone needing to develop more disgust and revulsion for it. But another interpretation, another translation of Nibbida is um, disenchantment. One should develop a disenchantment with regard to the aggregates, to this body and this mind. And that can be thought of as not being enchanted, breaking the spell of either wanting that package out there, whoever is around you, or of um, breaking the spell of our um, relationship to our body, to our own body and our mind. Breaking the spell has a very different feel than utter disgust. So you, it, it's important to go deeper when you are reading something that doesn't quite fit or make sense. Um, and as I said, I had this, this feeling that it wasn't okay to delight in life. And I wasn't alone. And I want to read to you um, a passage from Ajahn Sumedho, who is a very, uh, very wise being, wise uh, teacher, uh, a uh, Western Theravadan monastic who is really Jack Cornfield's mentor or big brother. They both were with Ajahn Chah. Um, so this is what he says. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. Now this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. 
They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. So when I realized that I somehow uh, took a wrong turn somewhere, fortunately for me, instead of turning my back on Buddha Dharma, I wanted to go a bit more deeply, especially I had been uh, a student of the Dharma and sharing the Dharma, and I knew that it had such riches to offer. I wanted to see what did the Buddha really say about happiness and cultivating happiness. And there's beautiful teachings that really uh, became the the foundation of this course that I that I've been teaching for a number of years, Awakening Joy, and uh, a book that that I wrote by that name. And so there's um, a few principles, three principles of the teachings that. Uh, were the foundation of my exploration. First is the Buddha's teaching on wise effort. Wise effort, you might have uh, a sense of that uh, of that term, thinking wise effort means uh, a kind of balanced effort and uh, not straining and striving and not being too light, uh, too laid back. And that is one way to think of wise effort. But technically, wise effort uh, entails four aspects. Two having to do with unwholesome states and two having to do with wholesome states. Unwholesome states, or akusala, uh, are states that are um, are suffering and that lead to more suffering. States like greed, hatred, delusion, fear, confusion, uh, judgment. Uh, there are some classical ones and ones that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that aren't specifically named as a mental factor. But all the unwholesome states, you know, envy, jealousy, um, restlessness, anxiety, all of those states are states of contraction. You're familiar with them, right? And when you're in the middle of them, you can't see clearly and it's, it's painful. And the Buddha said in the two wise efforts around unwholesome states, he says, guard against those states from arising as best you can. And when they have arisen, to learn how to overcome them so they don't overwhelm you. And that's a lot of what we've been talking about and doing and some of the, the, the beautiful talks about working with self-judgment and working with um, our uh, stories and confusions that we have. That's about learning to overcome unwholesome states. Um, and also being here and having taking the five precepts 
those are protections. They, those help guard against unwholesome states. Then there's the two that have to do with cultivating wholesome states. Wholesome states are states of well-being that lead to more happiness as well. States like um, love, loving kindness, generosity, compassion, um, clarity, um, patience, uh, equanimity. All of those states, kusala, K-U-S-U-L-A, are states of opening and expansion and states that we can feel um, resting in. And they open the heart and they open the mind. And he says, one, to cultivate these states is a very good thing. That's what we're doing here. Mindfulness happens to be the most profound, transformative, wholesome state that brings about all the others. Or doing a loving-kindness practice is cultivating a wholesome state, compassion practice, and all of those. And then the fourth wise effort is when a wholesome state has arisen, the Buddha says to maintain and increase that wholesome state. He says this is a good thing to maintain and increase wholesome states. Now you might think, well gosh, how do I do that? I know when it comes, I really want to maintain and increase it, but it seems like the more I try, the more I'm working against myself. So here's the little trick. If you are grasping at the wholesome state and say, bring it on, I want more, or please don't go away. As soon as you grasp, you've just fallen into an unwholesome state. So it's not by being greedy or attached to that wholesome state. There's another way. But I want you to understand that the more we can be here for those wholesome states and learn how to increase them, we are bringing about the conditions for the deepest kind of opening. The Buddha really said it's uh, one way to think of the practice is all about cultivating the wholesome and, and um, minimizing and abandoning the unwholesome. Have you had any wholesome states since you've been here? Maybe one or two, yeah. maybe a lot more. When you have a wholesome state, what's been your response? Oh, I hope it doesn't go away. How do I keep it going? Gee, I got into a groove and what do I do now? So this is one thing I wanted to share. So that's the first principle is cultivating wholesome states and when they've arisen to maintain and increase them. Mm. Now, the second principle is one of the most profound ways to maintain and increase the wholesome state. Uh, and this is uh, from a lesser known discourse for those who 
like to look these things up or, uh, or scholars. Uh, it's uh, Majima Nikaya number 99, where the Buddha says, accompanying a wholesome state, there's a gladness that arises. And he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, and these are the words in the, in the discourse, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. The gladness that's connected with the wholesome is an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. It's a good thing. Another also in that same discourse, he says, one, the gladness, one uh, delights in the heart, one opens, one um, finds inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dhamma, when you are connected to that gladness of the wholesome. And he gives us an example. He says, suppose you're in the middle of a generous act. He recommends in this discourse, think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He says, this is a good thing. He's not saying, check it out. I hope everybody sees how generous I am. Got it? No. That just is reifying the ego. But he does say, get in touch with how good it feels for generosity to move through me. And feel the gladness of that goodness, the gladness connected with that wholesomeness. You can actually feel it. Think for a moment. Uh, I'll, I'll have you uh, just go inside for a moment and think of something that brings you joy, a, a good, a wholesome kind of a joy some activity in your life or some, something that you engage in that really feels delicious or feels sweet or opens you up, opens your heart. And as you are feeling it, as you're in touch with it, getting, remembering it maybe the last time, just notice how it feels inside. Just even remembering it. How does it feel in your body and in your mind and in your heart? Here it is again. Don't miss it. Okay, you can open your eyes. Let's just check in for a few moments. Um, First, you can, uh, can do a two-parter. What brought you joy and how did it feel like? Uh, what did it feel like inside? You can take a few comments. I'll, I'll say them. I'll repeat them if I can hear them. What brought you joy? Yes. Uh, playing with your babies. Mm. And what was the experience inside? Mm -hmm. And how did it feel inside your body? Alive. Okay, great. Somebody else. 
Uh, petting your cat, pets, one of the best kind, yes. And how did it feel just recalling that? Just lovely. Uh huh. Yeah. Anything else? Yes. Uh, out in nature, in the woods, and the experience? Peaceful, calm, at ease, yes. Maybe one more. Okay. Yes. Dancing, yeah. Feeling alive, dancing, yes. And the feeling? What's that? Supple, agile, okay. Energetic, alive. Yeah, this is not anything foreign to you. We all have this capacity for... Um, that wholesomeness, and it feels good. But we can be so busy thinking about the next thing to do or being distracted by whatever is going on in our mind, our stories in our mind. It's kind of there, but not fully there. So here's a little extra credit assignment. When you're here, and you are in the middle of a wholesome state, don't miss it. Let it be your mindfulness object. And the more you tune into it, the more alive and connected you feel. It's like opening to that channel. My friend, our friend, Rick Hansen, who uh, is a neuroscience expert and um, talks a lot about the intersection between neuroscience and, and, and the Dharma, uh, and he comes to the Awakening Joy course, uh, he has a, a formula, suggested formula. He says when you're in the middle of something that's wholesome and good, he uh, advises uh, spending 30 seconds really being present for it. And he says if you do that six times in a day, I know that's three minutes of well-being. It might be a stretch for you. Six times in a day over a two-week period, you will notice a significant shift in your level of well-being. One, because you're deepening the grooves, the neural pathways, and two, because you're starting to look for it and get into the habit of looking for what's good and taking it in. He's actually, since he originally uh, had that suggestion, he's brought it down to even 12 or 15 seconds. That works too. But it's true that it takes some practice to look for and be present for the good when it comes. Because we're wired up with survival, important survival mechanisms that look out for what's dangerous. You know, we have this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain called the amygdala that scans the horizon for, uh, for danger. And it's a good thing that we have it, but we can have an overactive amygdala, particularly when we're stressed and we keep on firing and that becomes our default. I read one study that it takes seven, if you've had one negative encounter, for most people it takes seven positive encounters to balance out. Somebody snaps at you, 
And it takes about seven people saying, hi, how are you doing? Oh, nice to be with you before you kind of maybe chill out. Or as Rick puts it, the, the brain, our brains are um, Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. So there's some conditioning that we need to, um, we need to incline in another way. And that leads to the third principle. First one, wise efforts. Second, uh, being with the gladness of the wholesome. And the third, as the Buddha said in another discourse, Majjhima 19, he says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? What you frequently think and ponder upon, that's where your mind will land. And actually, in modern neuroscience, we, uh, we realize, we understand that the habits, as uh, Donald Hebb quoted the axiom, neurons that fire together, wire together. We are all creatures of habit in our mind. And so it takes some practice to uh, look at things in a new way if you're used to looking for what goes wrong. Thich Nhat Hanh has a great instruction, what's not wrong? Instead of seeing what's wrong, start to notice what's not wrong. And he gives the example, oh, last week I had a toothache. I don't have a toothache now. How wonderful. What's not wrong? But we have built in, and now, uh, now modern uh, brain see, uh, research sees this, we are um, creatures of what's called a confirmation bias, where once you have a certain core belief or principle, your brain will selectively notice everything that confirms that principle and will miss often things that don't. So if you're looking at how everybody is going to disappoint you, you'll probably have ample evidence to confirm that hypothesis or how people are jerks and they're just, you know, out to lunch, you know, or the whole world is going down the tubes. Easy to get into that thinking. If you look at how amazing it is to be alive. How really people want to feel safe and if they do, uh, be loved and share their love. Most, not everybody, but mostly. Or um, what a gift life has been for you and looking at all the, the blessings around. As you start to look for it, you see it, and that becomes your confirmation bias. So to start to look for the good and to notice it and take it in, this doesn't mean pretend that there's not dukkha in the world. The first noble truth they're suffering, and it's very important to understand how to 
open up to that without being overwhelmed by it. But if you see, your true nature is one that longs for well-being and there's goodness in there that wants to come out. Uh, it gives you a whole different framework. I want to share with you a picture that might remind you who you really are. This is of a, a, a baby, Chloe Thomas, who was born eight weeks premature. Um, but this is a picture. She had not yet come to nine months after conception, um, but she'll show you or maybe remind you who you are. Meet Chloe. Maybe you can, I hope you can see it from the back. That's who you were. You come into this world with joy. If you're fed and diapered and given a little bit of love, like you said, play, seeing being with your babies, why do we like to be with babies? They squeal with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? That was you. Do you remember? Well, that was a long time ago. I don't know. Uh, but actually, if an adult is put if in an fMRI machine and they are not stressed, that's a big one there, and they don't have discomfort, what the brain exhibits, that brain is conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's your true nature. So, how to work with this and see uh, that it's possible to use the practice to awaken joy. <clears throat> and what, what I did after I saw those, uh, those principles were uh, to look at different wholesome states that the Buddha recommended cultivating and be present for the gladness associated with them. And the first key state to cultivate is wise intention. It's one of the links in the Eightfold Path. It's, it's another way of saying wise thought, wise intention. To have the intention to uh, wake up, to have the intention to cultivate all the good inside. To have the intention, I find helpful, to go for true happiness, which is really what that intention is pointing to, just said in a different way. To really make the decision to be happy. Now, many people don't consciously make that decision. It might seem selfish. It might seem um, far-fetched. It might seem undeserving. But this is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life, to really go for happiness. And it's all about the intention. That's where inclining your mind, what one inclines one, one's mind, that's where it lands. How do you feel about the thought, I really want to be happy? And we say it in the, 
in the metta practice, you know, may I be happy. You've probably said that once or twice, you know. May I be happy to really feel it, really connect with it. And all the things that get in the way, I don't deserve it, this is selfish, this is frivolous, this is, you know, there's suffering in the world. How can I let myself be happy? All To notice all of those things that get in the way and to still go for it. It's a key decision. I want to read to you somebody who made this decision. This is from uh, a book I love, How We Choose to Be Happy by uh, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. These friends uh, uh, of mine, they became friends, who did a research project for three years. They went around looking for certifiably happy people. And they would travel all over the States and, and Europe and look for people that others said, yeah, she's pretty happy. And then they would ask if they could interview somebody in that person's life who might knew, know a different side, their, their co-workers or their relatives. And if everybody agreed, yep, Shirley's pretty happy, they'd say, why are you so happy? Right? And so they collected 320 or so of these stories and then distilled the different principles, the common denominators. And one of these, and you might think, oh, well, it's people who've just have it made and, and uh, they had a good life and so they're happy, but that's not so. And here's Adele's story. In one horrible 24 months, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground. It was the Oakland fire in 1991, leaving me with nothing, no clothes, photos, furniture, no material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. Oh my God. I had nothing, she goes on. I was so filled with grief I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and then I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity. I had a clean slate. And as long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way throughout my life. In spite of my grief, I could see this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. And Rick and Greg, who say this uh, Adele, it's not her real name, lights up the room. And she had to go through a number of years of the grieving process. It's not like you can just switch on all of a sudden, okay, now I'm happy. 
You have to feel all your, your deep wounds fully. But with that intention to go for well-being, she came out the other end, and she's quite an extraordinary being. Just for a moment, I'd like you to go inside. And get in touch if you are willing and able to have the intention to go for true happiness. Just imagine what it would be like if in six months, a year, two years from now, you learn more and more about opening up to all the goodness in your life and the goodness inside. And what that would be like both for you and for everyone you encounter, everyone in your life. And if it feels like something worthwhile, then make the decision to do your part to bring that about. No report card, no timetable. You just show up as best you can and let life support you. And that decision, your intention, is the magic in this process. And you might say, put it in some phrase or some words, whether it's, may I be happy, or may I open up to all the goodness in my life, or whatever words work for you to remind you of your intention. May I be happy for the benefit of all beings, whatever speaks to you. So it starts with intention, that intention. Everything rests on the, on the tip of one's motivation, one Tibetan saying goes. Intending is karma, the Buddha says. Intending through body, speech, and mind. That's where all of karma begins. So to get in touch with that wholesome intention and having that intention widened to be for the benefit of others deepens it even more because everybody's going to benefit from yours from your own happiness so i'll just mention uh, a couple of other things you know i can't fit the five month course into an hour but uh, just a couple of things that maybe you can keep in mind as you practice first uh, the the second in this in this process that I see as the basic tool of the, my, of the joyful life is mindfulness. Because the Buddha, as the Buddha said, there is one most direct way or one most wonderful way 
to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and grief, and pain, anxiety, and realize the highest happiness. That is the establishment of mindfulness. It's quite extraordinary. Of all the different mental factors in our makeup, and there are 52 of all in Buddhist psychology, it's kind of like the deck you're dealt. Right? There are some unwholesome and some wholesome. Mindfulness has the unique property of weakening all the unwholesome factors and strengthening all the wholesome ones. It's the one that does it. It's magical. And I won't get into, we could spend the rest of the retreat talking about all the benefits of, of mindfulness, but just know that every moment that you are mindful, you are weakening habits of greed, hatred, and delusion, and all the unwholesome factors, and strengthening habits of kindness, generosity, wisdom, and all the wholesome factors. Then you apply that mindfulness to the wholesome state. And I'll just uh, end with uh, talking about the, the third in this. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, as an example, gratitude. To see what is good in our life and to see our blessings, to feel our blessings, not to pretend that the dukkha isn't there, but it gives us a wider container to hold all of the challenges. As, as one, one uh, teacher says, it's like gratitude is like putting out your satellite dish to receive all the blessings. If you're kind of complaining and grumbling, oh, this is wrong and that's wrong and why isn't that different? And there's no room for the blessings to come in. You're too contracted. But if you say thank you and you start noticing all the good inside as well as out, then you can really tune in to all the goodness around you just by starting to appreciate it. And you can think of mindfulness as an appreciation practice. As an example, uh, close your eyes for a moment and think of some blessing in your life, someone or something that you're grateful for or grateful to. And you might have a, an image, a picture of, of them or the situation. And as you do get in touch with it, just give a simple, silent thank you right from your heart. Thank you. And as you're in touch with that thank you, let your mindfulness feel the landscape of gratitude. You don't have to make anything else happen. Just rest in it. Thank you. Take a breath. Bring to mind another blessing. 
someone, something. Have an image. Again, a simple thank you from your heart. Thank you. And let your awareness rest in it. Take a breath. One last one. One more blessing. Have an image. A sincere thank you from your heart. Thank you. Rest in it. Notice how it feels. Yeah, you can open your eyes. So you just put in maybe about uh, a minute and a half of your three minutes for, for the day. Now, I don't want you to come away thinking, oh, this is a, just a Pollyanna way to think of of practice. I don't have time to get into the others. And the next one is opening up to your suffering as a path to joy, which the Buddha said, that's how it works. Our suffering can be a doorway to deep happiness and peace. And just as an example, before we, I won't get into it, but he has this one teaching where suffering can lead to faith, can lead to joy, can lead to, can lead to gladness, joy, happiness, contentment, awakening. How can suffering lead to faith and to joy? How many people here have been motivated by their suffering to look for a deeper understanding of life? Look around. That's how it works. And that's what we're doing now, learning tools to open up to the suffering and the sorrow so we're not overwhelmed or frightened by it, and that allowing the heart to be tender and soft and open and courageous and centered is a very profound support of this process of awakening joy. I want to leave you with uh, one last story uh, in case you might think that this isn't for you. You know, well, I've been practicing one way a long time and I don't know if I can, if I can change. Uh, and it's the, the story, the best story that's come out of all of this. Uh, it's a personal story, the story of my mom. Some of you have said you, you know my mom. How many people know my mom here? There's a few. Okay. Oh, good. Well, for those that don't, and I'll give you maybe a little inside uh, that, that might be so uh, not known. So my mom, for those who aren't familiar, she's a, a YouTube star with now, I think it's over 400,000 views. If you want to see her, go to Confessions of a Jewish Mother, How My Son Ruined My Life. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, at the age of 89, my mom passed away a couple of years ago at 94. Uh, at the age of 89, 
um, I was writing the the book, and uh, I was visiting her down in Los Angeles, uh, where she lived. I I live in uh, in the Bay Area, and my sister was away for um, for a few weeks, and I we agreed I'd go go down and uh, keep my mom company. And I was writing the book in this chapter on gratitude was what I was working on, and I had all this research on the power of gratitude. And I was reading it to her, and my mom, the important piece, uh, by her own admission, as she says on the YouTube clip, uh, has, um, is the quintessential Jewish mother, which means she is a kvetch. That means a complainer. Okay? And she has, she complained most of her life. A beautiful heart, lots of love, but that was a big part of her. So I was reading all this research, and I said, Hey, Mom, what do you think? Isn't that cool? She said, That's very impressive. I said, Wouldn't it be great to have a gratitude practice? And she kind of rolled her eyes, and she said, Look, James, I know my life is very blessed, but I've been looking at the glass half empty for a long time. I don't think I'm about to change. I'm 89. And I said, yeah, I can understand. And I said, Mom, if you could change, would you change? She said, if I could, I would, but I don't think I'm going to. You know, Don't hold your breath. You know. And I said, I, something came, came over me, and I said, Let's play a game. Oh, yeah. And she was into playing games. She's, we were playing Scrabble at the time this conversation was happening. She was a great Scrabble player. Loved to beat me. And uh, I said, Mom, every time you complain, I'll just remind you that your life is blessed. She said, what do you mean? And I said, well, suppose you say, oh, it's so cold here in Marina del Rey, California. <laughs> It's so cold today, and I say, and, and you say, and my life is very blessed. And she said, okay, let's do it. We had the most amazing week as the complaints rolled off her tongue, one after another, and I was catching them and saying, oh, gosh, this TV reception, and, oh, and my life is blessed. And we laughed the whole week. And she got how incessant her mind was in that direction. Magically, it stuck. And I called her up a lot after those first couple of, when I got home, I said, hi, Mom, how you doing? We talked for a few moments. And, you know, a friend of hers was doing this, uh, was in on the game back uh, down there. My sister, who had a similar kind of uh, habit as my mom when she came back from her vacation, one of her first comments was, what did you do to mom? <laughs> she was not all that thrilled for a while. Now, now she's got it. But what happened was it stuck the last five years of her life. And I put in the book 
a card that she had written for my, for my birthday. We always exchanged poems on our birthday in our families, in our family. And she wrote this card. She was losing her eyesight to macular degeneration. Uh, she refers to it. And this is what she wrote. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing to be sure. If my mom can change at 89, anyone can change. And this went on for the last five years of her life. Every conversation was peppered with how blessed she, she was and we were. Even at the end when she, was, she, died, she had cancer and she was so grateful there wasn't pain for that last year. But the last, the last six months of her life, her eyesight was gone, her ear, hearing only when she turned up her hearing aids. She couldn't get out of bed and she kept on talking about how blessed she was. About three weeks before the end, I was visiting her and I walked into her, be her room, bedroom uh, one morning and she looked very deep in thought. And I said, um, all of a sudden she looked up and she could tell that I was there. I said, wow, mom, what were you thinking? She said, actually, my mind was completely devoid of all thought except thank you, God, thank you, God. I said, Mom, can I quote you on that? She said, will I get a commission? <laughs> Always had a sense of humor. And even at the very end, the l I, uh, no, I won't tell you that. I, uh, I, s I shared, I said, do you want me to read something for your memorial? She said, sure. And she went through a few things, choice words about politics and uh, she's a, a rabid liberal. And uh, after that, she said, I don't know what I did to deserve this life. It's been such an incredible run. I've been so blessed. And then she said, blessed. It's such a small word, and it means everything. It's possible to change. While you're here, please include in your practice noticing and maybe even looking for the good. When the, the dukkha is here, not to pretend it's not, to really feel it fully with a compassionate heart, to find the courage and the space. But in the meantime, when it's not there, even noticing moments Oh, not miserable now. That's a start. <laughs> oh, this is an okay moment. Oh, this is a moment I'm alive in the finite number of moments in my life. 
this is one of them that will never be here again. Let me be here for this. So to open to the wholesome, as the Buddha says, cultivating it, and when it's here, to allow it to be here, maintain it, and increase it just by not missing it. And that joy is right inside of you and it is the greatest gift that you have to the world. So let's just take a moment to share the silence. Thank you for your attention.